Hi, this is Chris Young, and welcome to episode 33 of Contemplating Life. A quick note at the beginning to say there are a lot of video clips in the YouTube version of today's podcast, so you might want to try the YouTube version. Also, some warning, some of it is images of 9-11. In the description, you can find links to the videos excerpted here, as well as lots of Wikipedia articles that will be of special interest. So after taking a couple of weeks off, it's time to figuratively roll up my sleeves and get to writing again. After spending over 15 weeks looking back on my life in school, it got me to thinking about how much history I've witnessed over the past 68 years. I've lived through a lot of stuff. Recently, I was talking to one of my home health aides about this. She's a woman in her early 30s. Many of the things I was talking about were before she was born. I told her, I'm really old. I witnessed a lot of interesting events in my lifetime. I watched people walk on the moon live on TV. She said, yeah, I guess you really are old if you remember people walking on the moon. Next thing you're going to be telling me is you saw Martin Luther King march on Washington. Well, not in person, but I remember that day. I remember watching the news flash interrupt my TV show when he was assassinated. Bobby Kennedy, too. Holy shit, I didn't think you were that old. In her mind, MLK was ancient history. I said to her, do the math. I'm 68 years old. Martin Luther King was killed in 1968. I was 13 years old at the time. A couple of years ago, when it was the 20th anniversary of 9-11, I had a home health aide who was only 19. It freaked me out that 9-11 was before she was born. That really made me feel old. So anyway, I decided I would do a couple of episodes about some of the major historical events I've witnessed over my lifetime. My mother was a very political person. She was a lifelong Democrat and Roman Catholic, so naturally she was very excited when John F. Kennedy was running for president. I was in kindergarten at the time. My Aunt Jody took care of me on election day because Mom had volunteered to work at the polls. My aunt didn't live very far from my house, and they rerouted the school bus a couple of blocks to pick me up at her place. I could sense Mom's enthusiasm for JFK as a candidate, and I really saw her joy when he was elected. She explained to me it was a really big deal that we had never had a Catholic president before. I asked her, why is it such a big deal? She explained that a lot of people didn't like Catholics. Fortunately, that was something I never experienced personally. I was aware Catholics were somehow different from other Christians, but it was more along the lines of, that's weird, rather than, you're horrible for being a Catholic. My mother watched the Today Show every morning, and that brought me the news of my first significant world event that I recall, the Cuban Missile Crisis. For those of you who are too young, American spy planes had detected that Russian missiles capable of carrying nuclear warheads were being deployed in Cuba, just 90 miles from Florida. President Kennedy established a naval blockade around Cuba to prevent further Russian ships 
from delivering weapons. I could sense my mother was deeply disturbed by the news. Many people were justifiably concerned that we were on the brink of nuclear war. I have very distinct memories of uttering the sentence, What's a blockade, Mommy? I once told that story to a friend at church who was my age. She says, yeah, I remember that as well. My parents were worried, but we lived in Alaska. They thought that when the missiles started flying out of Cuba, we would be in the path of the land invasion that was coming right after that. Ever since I was very young, I was fascinated by space travel. While I was telling stories about my kindergarten days, I forgot to mention that in my kindergarten class, we had a TV in the classroom, and we watched Alan Shepard as he became the first American into space on a suborbital flight, May 5th, 1961. My classmates were upset that it interrupted their favorite children's show, Captain Kangaroo. I thought they were crazy. I like Captain Kangaroo a lot, but this was the guy sitting on top of a rocket going in outer space for the first time. That was way more cool. The next big event that I lived through with vivid memories is, of course, the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963. I already told that story in episode 16. I was eight years old and in the third grade. If you know any U.S. history from that era, you know that 1968 was a huge year. As I previously mentioned, I was watching TV on April 4th, 1968, when they announced that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Presidential candidate Bobby Kennedy was in Indianapolis that night, holding a political rally in a park when the news came down. It was a very rough inner-city ghetto neighborhood. He announced to a crowd of mostly black voters that MLK had been killed. He gave an amazing speech that night to keep the crowd calm. Here are some excerpts from what he said that night. You can see the entire speech in the YouTube video I've linked in the description. I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, in this difficult time for the United States, it's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country and greater polarization, black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another.
Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have they subsequently raised a monument on that spot to commemorate what he did that night. Indianapolis was one of the largest cities that did not have riots that evening in response to the MLK assassination. Portions of his remarks that night are also engraved on the RFK Memorial in Arlington National Cemetery, just 68 days after the MLK assassination. Robert Kennedy was assassinated as well. In August of 68, my family took our first out-of-state vacation. We went to Chicago and spent three days visiting museums. I've been there again on two other occasions. I really love the city. While we were there, protesters were gathering in Grant Park in anticipation of the Democratic National Convention that was just a couple of weeks away. Weeks later, when I watched on TV, I was in shock and horror at the chaos inside and outside the convention. Inside the convention, there were disagreements over alternative slates of delegates. As one rejected delegate was being thrown out of the venue, CBS reporter Dan Rather was roughed up by security cards as he tried to interview the man. Forcing him out. Dan Rather? What's your name, sir? And what is your name, sir? Take your hands off of me. Dan Rather? Unless you intend to arrest me, don't, don't push me, please. Sir, I'm I know you won't, but don't push me. Take your hands off of me unless you intend to arrest me. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Well, Walter, as you can see. I don't know what's going on, but this these are security people apparently around Dan. And obviously getting roughed up. We tried to talk to the man, and we got uh, bodily pushed out of the way. This is the kind of thing that's been going on outside the hall. This is the first time we've had it happen inside the hall. We, uh, I'm sorry to be out of breath, but somebody felt him in his stomach doing that. What happened is a Georgia delegate, at least he had a Georgia delegate sign on, was uh, being hauled out of the hall. We tried to uh, talk to him to see why, who he was, and what the situation was. And at that instant, the security people... Uh, well, as you can see, put me on the deck. I didn't do very well. I think we've got a bunch of thugs here, Dan. If I may be permitted to say so. Well, mind you, Walter, I'm all right. I, it's, uh, it's all in a day's work. Well, I saw the performance, and it didn't look very good from here, I'll tell you that. Uh, thank you, Dan, for staying in there, pitching despite every handicap that they can possibly put in our way from free flow of information at this Democratic National Convention. Outside the convention, Mayor Richard Daley became fearful of threats made by the protesters and sent massive amounts of police and National Guard troops 
to break up the protests. Protesters were brutally beaten by police on national TV. On several occasions, I've jokingly quipped, Yeah, I was in Chicago back in 68. I'll never forget the sights I saw. All the yippies gathering in Grant Park, not knowing the fate that awaited them. <laughs> of course, when I tell the story, I leave out the part I was only 13 years old and was visiting museums with Mommy and Daddy. I wasn't exactly plugged into the yippie scene at that young age. While we were vacationing in Chicago, the Republican National Convention was going on in Miami. One evening we watched some of it on TV in the hotel room. I saw Indianapolis Mayor Richard Luger give an address at the convention. I had recalled it was the keynote address, but my research says that Ronald Reagan gave that official keynote. Still, it was a major speech that put him on the national stage. Someone at the convention gave him the unfortunate title, Nixon's favorite mayor. Not that I want anything to do with Nixon, but Luger was my favorite mayor and U.S. senator as well. Luger was one of the few Republicans I've ever voted for. When he was mayor, he established something called the Mayor's Advisory Committee on the Handicapped. And he was a staunch advocate for a variety of disability issues as both mayor and later as U.S. Senator. I heard him speak on campus at IUPUI one time, and he was amazing. I had great respect for the man. He not only fought for Indiana issues and concerns, but he was also famous for the Luger-Nunn Act on Disarmament of Nuclear, Chemical, and Biological Weapons. In 2012, he faced a serious primary challenge from radical Tea Party conservative candidate Richard Murdoch. Murdoch held bizarre views, such as the idea that if a woman was raped and conceived a child, that was God's will. I crossed over and voted in the Republican primary that year to try to help Luger stay in office. Unfortunately, Murdoch defeated Luger in the Republican primary, and Democrat Joe Donnelly won the general election, despite the fact that Indiana is a mostly red state. Luger never held political office again, and he died in 2019. But anyway, back to 1968 again. The highlight of that year for me and for many people was the mission of Apollo 8. Astronauts Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and William Anderson circled the moon in December of that year. It was the furthest that human beings had ever traveled from the Earth at that time. In a live broadcast on Christmas Eve, they read verses from the book of Genesis about the creation of Earth. And uh, for all the people back on Earth, the crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the Earth. And the Earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and divided the light from the darkness. 
When they returned, they released a very famous photo that they had taken on Christmas Eve. The photo, called Earthrise, shows the distant Earth rising above the horizon of the moon. Seeing the Earth from that perspective created a lot of healing at the end of that very troubled year. A year that saw the height of the Vietnam War, peace protests met with violence, and the assassination of two major political leaders who were men of peace. Rather than go through a chronological telling of my recollections of major world events, we're going to skip ahead to September 11, 2001. This episode premieres on September 11, although Patreon subscribers get it a week early. In those days, I typically didn't get out of bed until 10.30 or 11 a.m. My mother, as she had done since I was a child, was watching the Today Show that morning. She came in and woke me up. An airplane hit the World Trade Center. Do you want to turn on the Today Show? I said, wow, I remember about hearing when a military plane crashed into the Empire State Building on a foggy night back in the 1940s. I turned on the TV in my bedroom. I was surprised to see a clear, bright, sunshiny day in New York City. Whatever it was that caused this, it wasn't fog or visibility problems. They were saying it was a commuter plane. Now, I don't travel by plane, so my image of a commuter plane was perhaps a twin-engine propeller aircraft holding a dozen or more people. I certainly wasn't thinking about a 767 Along with millions of other people around the world, I watched live as the second plane hit the South Tower. It amazed me the way it disappeared into the building and nothing but flame and debris exited the other side. Along with everyone else, I came to the realization this was no accident. I sat through the endless replays of the event. Some of the cameras broadcasting the scene were tilted very slightly. And at several points, Mom and I thought it looked as though one or both of the World Trade Center buildings was going to fall over sideways. In retrospect, I should have known it couldn't happen that way. My next recollection was NBC Pentagon correspondent Jim Mikloshevsky, who was put on the air live from the Pentagon. Here's part of his report. But Jim Mikloszewski has some new information at the Pentagon. I hope you'll stand by and continue to talk with us. Mick? Katie, I don't want to alarm anybody right now, but apparently there, it, it felt just a few moments ago like there was an explosion of some kind here at the Pentagon. Uh, we're on the E-ring of the Pentagon. Uh, we have a window that faces out toward the Potomac, toward the Kennedy Center. We haven't been able to see or, or hear anything after the initial blast. I just stepped out in the hallway. Security guards were herding people out of the building. 
and I saw just a moment ago as I looked outside a number of construction workers who have been working here have taken flight. They're running as far away from the building as they can right now. Uh, I, I, I hear no sirens going off in the building. I see no smoke. But the building shook for just a couple of seconds. The windows rattled. And uh, security personnel are doing what they can momentarily to clear this part of the building. Again, uh, I, I have no idea whether it was part of the construction work, uh, whether it was an accident, or what is going on. We're going to try to find those details and get them to you as soon as possible. A few minutes later, he returned to the air to confirm that he had spoken to a high-ranking military man. He reported that a plane had crashed into the Pentagon near the helicopter landing pad. I don't recall the exact sequence of events. I'm not going to research for just this story. But we eventually learned of the fourth plane crashing into Shanksville, Pennsylvania. The thought that was going through everyone's heads at this point was, how big is this? How many other crashes are we going to have? It wasn't any longer isolated to New York City. I think it was the next day or so afterwards, I spoke to my friend Judy, who works in a tall office building in downtown Indianapolis. She said they evacuated the building and sent everyone home in case something happened here in Indianapolis as well. I distinctly remember the speeches that President Bush gave, one at a school in Florida that morning as the attacks occurred, one at a military base where Air Force One stopped off briefly, and then again at the White House later that evening. I was shocked when I heard that the FAA was shutting down the entire U.S. airspace. My next recollection from 9-11 was when CNBC correspondent Ron Insana joined the coverage in the studio. In those days, I was a regular viewer of CNBC Business Channel because I had about $2,000 invested in the stock market, and he was one of my favorite correspondents. He appeared in the New York studios, covered in gray dust. It was all over his bald head and shoulders of his dark gray suit. He told the harrowing story of being near the scene when the first tower collapsed. A giant wave of gray dust rolled down the street. He and the MSNBC cameraman ducked inside a parked car as the sky turned totally black around them. When it settled a bit and turned into gray dust, they exited the car, and the police car picked them up and drove them out of the area, stopping to pick up some injured people to take them to the hospital. When I saw him on camera covered in dust, that's when I burst into tears and began sobbing uncontrollably. Someone who I felt like I knew personally from watching him on TV every day. Someone who I admired. Someone who was bald-headed and wore glasses and was an intellectual like me. They had nearly died. And somehow, it all became very real at that instant. It wasn't always that real for me. I became detached. When I saw the footage of the towers collapsing, I felt like slapping my forehead and saying, of course that's how it looks when a building collapses. Hollywood gets it wrong almost every time. 
You've seen those scenes in the apocalyptic movies where they show a devastated cityscape. Invariably, there's at least one skyscraper tilted over, leaning against another one at a steep angle. Buildings just aren't strong enough to stay intact if they ever did fall sideways like that. The movie special effects people don't generally show the vast clouds of dust like we saw during the collapse of the World Trade Center. You'd think they'd know better because of all the footage we have of controlled demolitions. Those demolitions always create vast clouds of dust that roll down the connecting streets for blocks, just like we saw from the WTC collapse. I've seen several documentaries about taking down buildings using controlled demolitions. When they blow out the foundation, the entire building starts moving straight down. Once it's in motion, the momentum of all that weight moving causes the floors to pancake down upon one another. The towers of the World Trade Center were weakened by the burning jet fuel about two-thirds and three-fourths of the way up. Once those gave way, the floors started moving downward. That momentum carried through until it was nothing but a pile of rubble. There was a slight twist to the upper floors as one of the towers collapsed, but for the most part, it went straight down, with debris cascading out the sides like a gray waterfall. At the moment, I imagined Hollywood special effects crews watching the scene thinking, we're going to have to come up with new ways to depict buildings collapsing in apocalyptic films. Now that probably seems horribly cold and detached. Over a thousand people were dying in those buildings at that instant. And all I could think of was how it would be depicted in movies. I think it was because at that moment, I just couldn't wrap my brain around the idea that so many people were dying before my eyes. To this day, the most haunting thing about those images is the knowledge that there were people in wheelchairs stranded in those buildings. Disabled occupants were told that the standard procedure in case of emergency was to make their way to one of the mid-level lobby floors and shelter in place until they could be rescued. A story emerged post 9-11 of a man who died because he stayed behind to sit with his disabled friend in a power wheelchair who could not get down the stairways. I can imagine the number of my friends possibly doing that for me. It makes me feel blessed and revulsed at the same time. When I was attending IUPUI at the 38th Street campus, the elevator went out in the Cranert building one day. A couple of my friends had to carry me in my wheelchair down two and a half flights of stairs. Another time I was visiting my friend Judy at her job at the Church Federation when the elevator went out. The janitors carried me down one flight. I never could work or study on a regular basis in any building taller than a couple of stories. It just wouldn't feel safe. A few days after 9-11, airplanes returned to the sky. My house is located near one of the approach flights to Indianapolis International Airport. The planes don't fly directly over my house 
but we see them as they come from the northwest to the southeast and then turn due south over Speedway and head towards the airport. For three days, only military and police aircraft were allowed to fly over the U.S. And when the planes returned to the sky, it seemed eerie to hear them flying again near my home. Two days after the attack, it was my job to teach a class for Catholic converts at St. Gabriel Church. I set aside my regular curriculum for half of that class. I did some research by going to the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Part of it is organized around the Ten Commandments, and I have looked under the Fifth Commandment, You Shall Not Kill. Among the pertinent topics to discussed was suicide, since obviously this was a suicide mission by the hijackers. It explained that it might be noble to sacrifice your life in battle. There was a difference between being a casualty of war and going on a deliberate suicide mission. The church is, of course, completely opposed to suicide. The Catechism also talked about our obligation to constantly work for peace, but it recognizes that under particular circumstances, participation in war can be justified. Here are two interesting paragraphs from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Paragraph 2308, quote, All citizens and all governments are obliged to work for the avoidance of war. However, as long as the danger of war persists and there is no international authority with the necessary competence and power, governments cannot be denied the right of lawful self-defense once all peace efforts have failed. In other words, governments have the right to defend their country because we don't have an effective global police force, even though sometimes the UN or the U.S. tries to be. Paragraph 2309, quote, The strict conditions for legitimate defense by military force require rigorous consideration. The gravity of such a decision makes it subject to rigorous conditions of moral legitimacy. At one and the same time, one, the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. Two, all other means of putting an end to it must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. Three, there must be serious prospects of success. Four, the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders greater than the evil to be eliminated. The power of modern means of destruction weighs very heavily in evaluating this condition. These are the traditional elements enumerated in what is called the just war doctrine. The evaluation of these conditions for moral legitimacy belongs to the prudential judgment of those who have responsibility for the common good. End quote. As much as I abhor war, I always felt that the first Gulf War, where Iraq invaded Kuwait, was a reasonably good example of those conditions. 
Bush 41 tried every means of diplomacy available, put together a broad international coalition, and only attacked when all else had failed. I also think the defense of Ukraine falls into that category. You had one country illegitimately evading another, and Ukraine has every right to self-defense and a right to the support of other nations in that effort. Anyway, discussing all these topics was very difficult to do just two days after 9-11, but I felt we had to do it given the circumstance. On September 30th, 2001, they held the U.S. Formula One Grand Prix at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, less than a mile from my house. It was the first major international sporting event after 9-11. And people were very worried something might happen, but fortunately, it did not. The Indianapolis 500, held each May, is the largest single-day spectator sporting event in the world. It could be a prime target for terrorist activity, but fortunately, we've been spared. I apologize this episode is already longer than usual, but I think it's instructive to look back on history and reflect on the ways that things either have changed or in some cases failed to change. As I've mentioned previously, I aspire to someday be a science fiction writer. And often sci-fi tells time travel stories about people who want to change history. Next week, I'll give you an outline of my little fantasy story of how I would change history if I could. It's a story that was brewing in my mind for many years, and I had it all worked out. I'm going to tell you how this story would have unfolded and why recent events have made that story impossible, or at least it would be severely different than the way I intended it originally. If you find this podcast educational, entertaining, enlightening, or even inspiring, consider sponsoring me on Patreon for just $5 per month. You'll get early access to the podcast and any other benefits I might come up with down the road. Although I have some financial struggles, I'm not really in this for the money. But every little bit helps. Many thanks to my Patreon supporters. Your support helps to pay for the writing seminar I attend. But mostly I appreciate it because it shows how much you care and support what I'm doing. That means more to me than words can express. Even if you cannot provide financial support, I'm begging you, please, post links and share this podcast on social media so that I can grow my audience. All of my back episodes are available, and I encourage you to check them out if you're new to the podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or other feedback, please feel free to comment on any of the platforms where you find the podcast. Share with me the stories of historical events that you've lived through. Let's get a conversation going. I'll see you next week as we continue contemplating life. Until then, literally, fly safe, everyone.